Welcome to Explore, Teach, Conserve, or the ETC podcast by the University of Minnesota Extension, where we talk with people about exploring, making discoveries, and solving problems to better manage our natural resources, and we share ideas to help you learn more and get involved. This is an older episode from when we used a different title, The Naturalist, but the conversation and ideas are still fresh. If you enjoy it, we hope you'll subscribe and listen to more episodes of Explore, Teach, Conserve, or the ETC. Hi, I'm Santiago from U of M Extension, and this is The Naturalist, a podcast that aims to explore the various topics within the world of Minnesota natural resources, all while trying to capture great stories and talk to people about the environment. On this episode, we talk phenology with staff phenologist John Latimer from KAXE out in Grand Rapids and associate extension professor Eli Sagor, who manages the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative based out of the Cloquet Forestry Center. Phenology is a term I've heard here and there during my time at school. For anyone who's not familiar with phenology, it's the study of how ecological cycles are impacted by seasonal variation. Obviously, that's a very simplistic definition, so I set out to learn more about the topic, how people can get involved with making phenological observations, and how the data might be used. Hello? Hey again. Hey. That's John Latimer. While digging more into the topic, his name consistently came up. I gave him a call to hear about how he got started in the world of phenology and what he had to say about his journey. So, uh, I guess uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, my name is John Latimer. I am the staff phenologist at Northern Community Radio, which is KAXCKBXC in Grand Rapids and Bemidji, Bagley, Minnesota. And presently, I work for the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in a climate change experiment called Spruce, about 25 miles north of Grand Rapids. I spent the previous 35 years as a rural mail carrier working out of the Grand Rapids office. At a 100 mile mail route that I drove five days a week. Wow. <laughs> so, that I guess. Good start there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, I guess okay. the, the first question I had for you was um, you know, how how did that transition happen? How did you go from doing a 100 mile mail route, you know, five days a week to, you know, partaking in um, these phenology? Um, experiments and, and these projects that look at the seasonal changes and things along that sort. Yeah, so I was working for about five years before I worked uh, as a part-time employee of the post office before I had enough seniority to make uh, the transition to full-time. And during that time, I met several people around the area, and one woman in particular who was uh, very interested in what was happening in her out of doors. 
She had a beautiful home on uh, Lake, which is just northwest of Grand Rapids, and just a, a gorgeous spot right on the lake with a little lagoon in her front yard. And I used to stop there once a week and have coffee with her. And uh, her name was Mary Barquist, and Mary and I struck up a friendship, and so every week I would stop and just chat with her about whatever. And at some point, she happened to mention that, you know, she'd seen her first Robin today. And I thought, oh, that's kind of neat. And we got to talking, and then uh, we just started a... I wouldn't call it a, even a friendly competition. We just started comparing notes about what we were seeing in the outdoors. And Mary was a good observer. She and and a good journaler. She had a uh, a ledger in which she had recorded every day that she had gone out deer hunting since the mid 1950s. Oh wow! And yeah. And she had, you know, weather conditions, barometer, wind direction, temperature, snow on the ground or not, which deer stand she was in, you know, who shot deer where. It was this unbelievable compendium of information. I used to tease her that, you know, if somebody actually spent the time to go through that whole book, they could probably confine their deer hunting to about a half hour on any given day by just getting the data down and saying, okay, today it's going to be at 8.30 and it's going to be on this stand right here. (laughs) (laughs) So we started doing that, and then I think about that same time, uh, maybe for Christmas in uh, 1983, she gave me some field guides. And I began becoming more assiduous about keeping track of things and about that same time actually to back up a little bit in October of 1983 I went to uh, to volunteer at Northern Community Radio and in those days there was no morning edition I did the morning shift and I would come in turn on the transmitter get the thing powered up and then I would we had uh teletype machines and we would go in there and rip off the news and read it and then we would play music if that was our ken and and talk about whatever we wanted to talk about and i began talking about the things that i was seeing in my mail route and it wasn't very long after i started doing that that i got a lot of positive feedback people were Uh, calling into the radio station and talking to me about uh, things that they were seeing. And so I realized that, you know, I was on to something. And that sort of was the beginning. And then it kind of snowballed. And I don't know, I might have been into it for a couple of years. It might have been 1986 or 87, somewhere in there, that I realized that there was really no way I could quit doing what I was doing. That, mm-hmm. that these people expected me to be there each week with notes about the world that was around us all. And I just began a, a lifelong course of self-education. And that 
as you probably are aware, can include anything from reading to watching movies to talking to people who know more than you do, just every scrap of information that I could get a hold of that had anything to do with uh, life in northern Minnesota, I grabbed onto. And some of it was accurate and some of it wasn't. I mean, there were mistakes. I, For several years, I um, had misidentified a butterfly called well, the butterfly was called the Compton's tortoise shell, but I had misidentified it as the American painted lady. And I came to learn after about 10 years that, in fact, it was the Compton's tortoise shell. So it was, and that was only just one example of mistakes that were made. You know, I, I came to this not as a student of biology or botany or any of the sciences. I have a degree in economics, which is. Uh, not hasn't served me <laughs> the way uh, the way my own private education has served me. But I, I began back in the eighties, watching and observing and learning. And of course, the mail route afforded me a perfect opportunity because you you, you don't go very fast and you stop often, and you're sitting on the opposite side of the car than the steering wheel. <laughs> right, right. So you're looking out the side window right at the ditch, and anything that went by, I would make note of it. And whether it was a, a grass or a flower or a plant of one sort or another or a tree, I just started writing down what, what, was, what I was observing. Okay. And, uh, I've been a good observer all my life. I mean, my... I have six brothers and sisters, and they always used to tease me because I was always the one going down the road, looking out the back of the car window at the hawk on the power line or this or that, and, and just picking up details, you know? It wasn't just a bird on the power line. It was a bird, and it had certain colors in certain places, and so I would note them. And just, So observational skills were something that I had a little bit of a aptitude for before I began this whole thing. Okay. That's a, a quite the journey you've uh, you've taken. <laughs> it is. <laughs> what a long strange trip it's been, so to speak, <laughs> or <Yeah>. to paraphrase. <laughs> right. Now, I guess um one thing that's kind of coming to me in terms of um curiosity is uh have you have you seen a lot of changes in the, in the since you started this in terms of you know, certain species that you've been watching and um, just certain things that you've been picking up. Have you seen drastic changes in the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so? Um, mostly in things that are mobile. So the plants haven't changed much. The plant, the changes to plants has been in their basic phenology. But the changes in, you know, drastic changes within the environment um, gray fox. So until about 10 years ago, I'd never seen a gray fox. Now gray fox are as common up here as red foxes. And they have moved north over the years and are now quite common in this area. They were, they, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, they weren't here. And, and no one would have even assumed that they would be here. So gray 
gray fox, um, a little, well, not a little, a medium-sized bird called the red-bellied woodpecker, which is probably familiar to everybody south of Brainerd, mm-hmm. uh, became uh, a denizen of, a citizen of northern Minnesota. And, and again, you know, 15, 20 years ago, never heard of it, never saw it, and now they're, uh, I won't say common, but I do have one that that visits my feeder on a fairly regular basis, and I live quite a way out in the woods, so it's it's um, it's not like I'm in a in a big city area or something where it would be kind of wandering around the neighborhoods. This bird has found me and and my bird feeder and has availed itself, and I would expect that it probably is nesting in the area, and they're a year-round resident. They don't migrate. So they're they're here now, and they hadn't been here fifteen or twenty years ago. Mm. Wow. So most most of the you know dramatic, startling changes are animals, birds and and mammals, but the plants have definitely uh, changed their phenology. So if I look, for instance, at uh, oh something like aspens, they when I first started keeping records, the aspens the average date for for leaf out on the aspens was uh, May first. If you take the first ten years of my records and average them out, you'll get May first as your average. And now, if you take all all thirty years. 33 years of uh, data that I have on Aspen leaf out, May 20 or April 29th. So two days earlier in 30 years doesn't seem like much, but when you're talking about an average, it's significant. Mm-hmm. So the trend, the trend for Aspen leaf out is definitely to earlier. The trend for a lot of plants seems to be pushing toward earlier. Some plants. Not so much. Red maple doesn't seem to be particularly um, intent on on changing its phenology. It seems to be kind of steady, flat. Uh, but other plants, most definitely, are moving toward earlier flowering. Okay. And if you look at the long term, I suspect that it will continue. Uh, that's interesting. Now, do you have, um, would you say the community in their area is, you know, throughout the years has been very curious about all these changes as well? Uh, you know, it, they have been. It, as I mentioned, you know, when it first started, there was a, lot, a, a quick response. People were interested. So they, you know, it's like talking about the weather, except it's a little more particular. Uh, people were very interested from the start, and over the years, that interest has been peaked, and there aren't a lot of people in northern Minnesota, you know, within the confines of the listening area of KAXE, who don't know the definition of penology, which is probably not true of a lot of places. Right. So there are people who are definitely uh, tied in. There are a lot of people who are doing penology as a result of hearing me talk about phenology, uh, there are, there is a 
great deal of interest, and and I've done some to push that interest as well. I, I about nineteen oh ninety eight or ninety nine somewhere in there, I started um, visiting school classrooms and settled on fourth and fifth grades just because the science melds well and fourth and fifth graders are a great group of kids. They they aren't afraid to ask any question. They don't fear looking stupid in front of their compatriots. They're, they're fearless that way, and they don't have a lot of uh, boy-girl dynamics that interrupt the classroom. So I just like them. I like them as a group. I like their development, and they're absolutely fascinated about nature. And so I've been doing that for close to 18 years, probably coming up on 19 years. Hmm. And, that, you know, that is some of those, some of those fifth graders are now 29 and 30. <laughs> and, uh, and they are still doing phenology, or at least they're still looking at the world and thinking about phenology. Hmm. So interesting. Um, I guess bringing it to this year, um, you know, what are some some of the changes you've been observing uh, recently that, you know, you've been making kind of exclamation points uh, in your notebooks about, or um, are there any that are kind of really catching your eye? Yeah, you know, um, just, just to back up a little bit and, and maybe recap something that we talked about earlier and I forgot to mention is that uh, in terms of changes, when we were talking about the Aspens, the lake that I live on, which is a small 70-acre lake, about 25 feet deep, um, it has, over the last 30 years, it has gotten um, its ice in date, the day that it freezes over, has um, increased by about a half a day a year. So when I first started keeping records, it was usually frozen in the first week or 10 days of November. And now, typically, it's not frozen until after Thanksgiving, which can be the 25th, 26th. So that sort of a um, change has come about. Uh, that's kind of dramatic. And this year, the ice went out on my lake about 10 days ahead of average. And then I had the flowers of the speckled alder, which is a plant of the north woods and grows kind of in the transition zones between swamps and high ground. And it flowered about 10 days earlier. But then something like the emergence of the morning cloak butterflies, I was about a day late from average. Uh, so that each event sort of, you know, takes takes place in its own time period. Now, two weeks ago, I would have bet that by today, tomorrow, or the next day, the Aspens would have leafed out. I thought they were going to be early this year just based on the, when they first put out their first furry buds and then when the male catkins reached maturity and then when they fell off the trees. You looked at all those numbers, they were four, five, six days ahead of average. And I was thinking, you know, if the aspen stays on that uh, 
projection, then we should have leap out four, five, six days ahead of average, which would put it around the 23rd, 24th, somewhere in there. But we got some snow the other day, and we got some cold weather, and we're looking at cold weather for the next week. I'm guessing now that the Aspen probably won't leap out until after the 29th of April, just because, you know, weather is getting in the way. And of course, that's what phenology is. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a relationship between uh, plants and animals and the climate. Right. And climate, of course, is the weather in the aggregate. Right, right. So this year, the, the weather was warm early and it looked like we were going to be early. And now the weather is cool and it looks like we're going to fall to average or maybe a little bit behind average. Mm. Okay. Closing up, um, one of the final questions I had for you was just, what are some of the observations um, that you look forward to every year that kind of kind of maybe take your breath away even when, when you look at them? Yeah, good, good question. Which ones really do I look for? Well, you know, um, this time of year, I look for the red maples to break into flower, and they have. And in fact, now the male flowers have all fallen off the red maples. So now we're just talking about the female flowers. And, and if the male flowers are all falling off, we know they've already pollinated. But it's it just, you know, before there are any leaves on a maple tree, they're just absolutely gorgeous red. And that's because of the flowers on them. So that's always startling. The other thing, and probably the one thing that every year just tells me that it's spring, would be the aspen bud break. When the, when the trembling aspen leaves come out, an aspen's clone, and so there are, it's usually a clump. And oftentimes on my mail route, I would leave in the morning, I'd be driving around the route, and I might be out there, it might be 11 o'clock in the morning before it would actually happen. And somewhere on the mail route, all at once, I would see this pale green, kind of a great green wash on a clump of aspens. And I would be like, oh, they're breaking bud. And by the time I would get done with the mail route at 3 in the afternoon, there would be aspens leafing out everywhere, just everywhere. And then in the next day or two, you know, they just pop out and all of a sudden it's not, it's not winter anymore. It's spring and the aspens are in flower and leaf. So yeah, that's probably the, one of the biggest ones. Then of course, insects, you know, the first butterflies, first dragonflies. I haven't seen a dragonfly yet, but I've got a nephew who lives in Minneapolis and he said he saw one yesterday. So I... I remain hopeful they're on their way north, and I'll see one soon. <laughs> um, those two for spring, uh, aspens especially, just so dynamic, so unbelievable, and it just—it's the one thing that says to me, eh, "Summer, winter's over, summer's coming." Following my conversation with John, I met up with Eli to talk about the tools people can use to start taking phenological observations and the value of well-kept phenological data from a researcher standpoint. All right, so go ahead, 
and introduce yourself. You don't have to get too close. I'm Eli Sagor. I manage the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative for the University of Minnesota based at the Cloquet Forestry Center. All right, Eli. So with this, this particular episode, we've been focusing on the world of technology and how people can get involved. So, you know, what are some steps people can take if they're really fascinated with the field and you know, especially if they're not sure exactly where to go from you know, just having that spark of interest to mm -hmm. taking it further. Well, there's a lot people can do. I mean, I think the first step is just to start noticing things, start paying attention, start writing things down. There are some great tools out there. Nature's Notebook is one that I've used a lot and really think is great. Uh, just to make a record of your observations. Under Nature's Notebook, the way it's set up is that you would pick one location and you would uh, pick one individual or a small population, depending on the type of species, and then you would go back to that individual or that population repeatedly throughout the season or throughout the year and note your observations. So there are phenophases, they're called, different things like breaking bud or uh, leaf out or seed drop or leaf senescence when leaves uh, change color and drop. But you would note those different phenophases uh, for whatever species and populations you're interested in. Uh, and then that all gets uploaded to a database that aggregates your data along with data from other observers. Uh, and you can always look back at that. You've got a record uh, accessible to you. And researchers can also use those data. That, you know, they data, as I said, get pooled with those of others, other observers and, and become available, not with any personal identifiers. It's all uh, kind of anonymous. Mm -hmm. But um, there's real power in having a lot of different people making similar observations across the landscape. And while there might be weird variation with your one tree in your backyard, it might be different from some other trees, but looking at a record composed of a lot of different observers uh, over a period of several years, you can begin to see patterns. Even if yours is weird, chances are it's weird in the same way relative to the climate. So your tree might leaf out a few days later on average than other trees in the area of the same species or earlier, or it might be different in some other way. But if it leaves out on average three days later every year or whatever, then uh, you know, researchers, statisticians can pull those numbers apart and really make sense of those. So in terms of, of uh, how to start, I think you know, just beginning to observe. And goodness, when you talk to someone like John Latimer, who's been at it for 35 years or whatever it is, it can be daunting to think, well, gee, I could never, you know, I could never develop a record like that. Uh, but you never get there, you know, a long journey begins with one step and you never get to year 30 if you don't start in year one. And I have found personally that the, just the process of observing has made me notice things more, has made me just pay closer attention to the natural world around me. And, um, and I love it uh, for that reason. I enjoy my yard more because I do it. I enjoy hiking more because I notice it. Um, and I really like the idea that I could contribute to a, a body of data that might be useful for researchers who are able to um, better understand the natural world and what's going on out there uh, as a result of having those numbers to work with. Okay. That's, that's really awesome. Uh, you know, I, f I feel like it, it, can, it can be daunting for some people. You know, it's the idea of taking observations and um, 
just trying to notice everything can be a little bit hard to get into mm-hmm. for, for some people, but once they get into it, I've seen what I've heard is that yeah. it can get pretty, pretty, pretty interesting and pretty fun, and yeah. you just get really involved in it. Um, but how valuable can that data be, you know, in terms of someone keeping records for a while? Is, is that is that something that, you know, researchers and stuff, researchers and other groups are really looking into, or ideally... Absolutely. Uh, yes, it can really be very valuable, be, and, and particularly records that go back a long way. And there are a couple of different kinds of data. You can think about the data in different ways. You know, a lot of people talk about how their grandparents who have a farm and grow corn and soybeans down in, I don't know, Blue Earth County or wherever it might be. Uh, you know, Grandpa always noted the date he planted the corn. He wrote it in, in pencil on the uh, doorway of the barn every year. And so they've got a 35-year record, a 50-year record, or whatever it is, of the date the corn went in the ground. And data like that are fascinating and really actually can be very useful um, in terms of you know documenting change and seeing how things uh, have, have happened over time. But that's different, and no, no better or worse or whatever, but it's different from the kind of structured data collection that I just mentioned. One of the things that's good about Nature's Notebook is that it provides a lot of guidance, a lot of, gee, I, I don't know, what, what constitutes leaf senescence? Is it when I see the first color change? Is it when the leaf actually falls to the ground? What if the leaves on one branch fall to the ground but not the rest of the tree? Or, you know, how many leaves? And all of that is answered. And that's important because if all of the observers have different definitions, or if one observer's definition changes from year to year, that can make interpreting the data a little bit problematic. But if all observers are working kind of from the same playbook, in a sense, from the same guide, the same instructions, and the same set of definitions, so we call it leaf out when, for example, the petiole, the leaf stem that connects the leaf blade to the, to the twig, when that becomes visible. Um, and a lot of these things are defined in ways like that that provide clarity only first to the observer so that he or she knows that they're recording data accurately and also to the researcher who can then use that and feel more confident in the results that they're getting uh, and in the numbers that they're crunching because there's some standardization. So the system is not overly, you know, uh, detailed and, and rigorous. It's, it, they do a really good job of making definitions clear and, um, and, and you know, easy for observers to use. And, and there's a, so much flexibility that observers are, you know, can, can record whatever data they want, but within some sideboards that, that make the data more consistent and, and, uh, and useful. So again, there, you know, there are records like, oh, Grandpa always wrote when he, when he put the corn in, and uh, a lot of people have records of when their, their lake, uh, when the ice went out on the lake for the first time in the spring, uh, and all of these different things. And those kind of informal records are really useful, especially if they're long-term records. And there are researchers at the university who would love to get their hands on those records. Uh, but moving forward, there's, um, as I said, there can be huge value in, uh, in that sort of more systematic collection. And how are those data used? I mean, they're used in all kinds of ways. There's some concern now that as we see growing seasons lengthen uh, for some species, that's been documented, 
as we see uh, winters becoming a little milder, winters becoming a little shorter. Um, you know, we, we have this really great network of weather observation stations, but we don't have corresponding records of how the changes in the weather, the climate, are affecting different plants. And not all plants respond in the same way to changes in the climate or in seasonal patterns. Some of them respond really strongly, others don't respond at all. Uh, where you're dealing with species that migrate, uh, climate may be changing differently in the places where they overwinter from the places where they spend their summers. And that can lead to asynchrony or you know, problems of flowers blooming at a time that they depend on a pollinator to fertilize uh, uh, and produce the seed at a time that the pollinators are not there because they've responded differently or because they overwinter in a place where the seasonality has changed in a different way or not at all. And there is concern among ecologists that these problems of asynchrony between the, as just as one example, pollinators and the species that they pollinate can lead to uh, ecological problems, failures to pollinate, failures of certain kinds of crops, failures of, uh, of ecosystems to function in the ways that they um, have tended to do. And we need to understand those changes. You know, we, we need to see those things coming and, and think about what we can do to avoid um, problems that arise from those asynchronies. And, and we don't have anywhere near the resolution that we need right now in the phenological record, in, the, in our understanding of how different species in different places are responding uh, to variation in uh, local conditions. So observations like this, people just going out, noticing what's happening in their front yard, documenting that, um, can be tremendously valuable and are really important for researchers in order to get the resolution they need from species to species, from year to year, to see uh, what's going on. It doesn't take a whole lot of uh, you know, technical knowledge. It just requires someone to pay attention, be a little bit careful about uh, how they collect the data and, and a willingness to share the data. Uh, so, you know, you can't hoard the data if you, you want to? No, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, it's fine. You know, different pe and some people just have no interest in sharing it. It's a private record, maybe something like a diary that they would want to keep and keep to themselves, and that's fine. Uh, it, there's still a, just a, a really wonderful benefit to observing. Yeah. But uh, we sure would like to see people who are willing to share that. Again, it's completely anonymous. Uh, but, uh, but you know, for reasons I've already mentioned, it really can be useful to researchers. And it's fun. I mean, I know a lot of people who are making these observations on a regular basis and who really feel good about uh, this idea of contributing, you know, be, being a, uh, you know, a researcher in a sense, being a person who's able to contribute to this body of knowledge that uh, is really important for ecologists to, to understand the natural world that we're living in. That wraps up this episode of The Naturalist. You've been listening to a conversation about phenology with John Latimer and Eli Sagor. If you're looking for a start point, feel free to check out the Minnesota Phenology Network for more information. Our website is accessible at mnpn.usanpn.org. A little bit of a mouthful, but you can check them out online. And for everything extension, you can also log on to www.extension.umn.edu. Special thanks to Twin Musicom for providing music for this episode. And as always, my name is Santiago, and thank you for listening. Have a great day.